there's a line where I want to be super collaborative and I want to come up with things together. But there's also a line where it's like, I am the captain steering the ship, right? So at, at the end of the day, the buck ends with me. And so I have to be able to like also, you know, keep everything on the same page and on the same train. fucking crazy alexa are you listening to our conversation and sending information to the government fuck you (laughs) dude in north carolina i asked justin's mom's alexa i asked that bitch i was like hey alexa are you listening Mm -hmm. even when we're not talking to you she goes like please check amazon's privacy policies and i go hey alexa are you listening and sending all the information to the government And she goes, please check Amazon's privacy policies for more information. She never said yes or no. Oh my God. Honestly. Did you check the privacy policy? Hell no. (laughs) I'm scared. That that bitch is 40 pages long. (laughs) Yo, that that thing in the language in that makes no sense to anyone that- Well, purposely. Purposely. Crazy, right? That's why I don't have Alexa. I mean, our whole podcast. <laughs> yeah. Listen to <laughs> through Alexa. Oh. And- what? <laughs> I'm pissed at her. <laughs> Anywho. I like, I like on stories talking to Alexa and then it turns on everyone else's Alexa when they listen to my stories. It's fun and evil. Because <laughs> if I say like... That's so scary. What did I do? I think it was just like play Christmas music or something. And then it like, I got like a bunch of messages that were like, oh my God, I turned on my legs. <laughs> I could be real fucked up. I still have my tape covering my, I need to put my tape covering my camera. Yeah. Anywho. Maybe that's what Trump does all day. Yep. Looks at me. Or, you know, just like, my shirt. he's like, hey, so and so bring up like, 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 let's see. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Obama, that was a part of that privacy scandal, but whatever. Whatever. Hey guys, welcome back. Welcome to the Almost 30 podcast. We release every Tuesday and Thursday episodes that hopefully inspire you, make you laugh, make you think. Mm -hmm. And we have a beautiful community. They're all funny and curious and just very uplifting, supportive. So if you haven't joined the secret Facebook group, get in there. Mm. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's amazing. So happy you're here. We are three weeks into January, crushing it. Hopefully your resolutions or goals are going well and you are sticking with them and you are holding yourself accountable and you're holding those around you accountable. And hopefully they are centered in a why so that you really, really feel aligned to what you're doing. Yeah. It's been nice to kind of like ease into it 
I guess. Like I felt like a little more calm this year. I think like in years past, I've just been like, here we go. Yeah. New year, like full throttle. I'm trying and to think just... what my resolutions last year would be. I actually should have looked in my folder. Mm. Probably lose weight always. Did you, do you type them in like a- No, I just write them down. Uh-huh. But I don't know where they were. Maybe it was probably to quit too. And then I know there was one, my monetary goal. It was kind of crazy actually. I had like a specific number in mind and I don't want to trigger anyone so they know how rich I am. <laughs> don't be triggered. Um, but the 28th of December, I looked at my the number and I was like 60 bucks away from the number I wanted to hit, there which was like go. a very lofty number. Yeah. You know, like 4 billion or something. Mm-hmm. And all I had to do was like move over the money from my savings to, or my checking to my savings to get the number right before the New Year's. I was like, oh my, I, I never thought, I was like, whoa. That's incredible. It was incredible. It was, you know, it was just kind of one of those things. It was like, wow, this could happen. You know, mm-hmm. it could happen with, you know, the goal to set that intention. But yeah, it was crazy. I also think too, I was thinking today, I was like running simple errands and I was thinking of the really weird dichotomies in my life where, you know, thankfully, you know, I make enough money to like live comfortably and do things that I want to (laughs) do. But like, so I'm like shopping at Erwan for a few things. And then I go to the cash register and I'm like, Hey, do you have like $4 and quarters for my laundry. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but it's like, I'm trying to think I had another one where it's like, I'm bringing like my $20 sweater to be dry cleaned and it costs $10 to be dry cleaned. You know yes. what I mean? Like, I'm just, it's just funny little things where <laughs> I don't think it'll always be that way, but it's this um, limbo for me where it's not quite, I don't, I don't have my own washer and dryer. It's quite the limbo. Quite the limbo. Quite the limbo. <laughs> where I'm still like, you know, dealing with a landlord, which I is fine. I would deal with a landlord for my whole life, probably. Yeah, I mean, the rate- that, uh, Actually, the not way the this... fuckers that run my building. Yeah, man. Today Let's was the, today is actually the worst day of my life. So I'm so glad you guys are here to listen. <laughs> I just pulled up the mic closer to me, gather around, story time. So I get back from my workout, a nice walky workout. And I pull up to our apartment building, which we moved in in August. I was so excited to move in. I wasn't so excited, but I was kind of excited to move in because my old apartment sucked. And not only have they painted the place blue, it's a, what kind of blue would you call it? It is a, like a Rugrats blue. Rugrats, retirement home blue. It's very, very nothing. You don't feel, blue's hot, blue's a feel. Blue's a feel and cover. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like if someone had this blue type of aura, you'd be like, wow, they're crusty. It's a crusty blue. Mm. So it's blue and I walk up and they, I hear chainsaws. I'm like, what the heck? The most beautiful tree that sits in front of the, one of the windows in the building was being chainsawed down. And I am like, what? And I run in, I run to the front of the building and I see my trees in front of my window, which make my apartment what it is, 100%. They cover our porch. They cover our balcony. They provide us shade. They provide us beautiful. joy. They're so beautiful. And it's different because in California, there's mostly palm trees and there's not a lot of trees. So that was like a differentiating factor when we mm. moved in because it felt more homey and rustic and cozy because the trees were different than the trees that we normally see. And the foliage was like really nice and made you feel like home. So 
I'm like fighting with the guys downstairs. We're talking to all the neighbors. The neighbors have been there for 25 years. They are, you know, not old hat to this. And they said that they've tried to fight it for years and years. You know, three times they tried to cut down the trees. We called the city. We called the arborists. Like, and they basically weren't able Mm -hmm. to move quickly enough. And then when I came back today for my first meeting, my trees were like gone. It was so, now my apartment, I'm going to move. It's disgusting. My apartment is disgusting. I spent so much money to decorate it and it's gross. I feel you. It's I mean, so sad. It is so it's heartbreaking. More, it's more just like, why? Why and like, how do we like protect the trees uh, over know. the management's ownership, quote unquote, of the plot? They've never been there. You know, the management has never been there. They're sitting wherever they are and they're painting it whack colors and they just think, you know, clear it out so they can get more people that pay as much as I do, you know, in rent because most of the people in Santa Monica have rent control. So a lot of people in the building have been there for 25 years and they're paying one third what I'm paying. So it's a benefit to them to redo and clean it up and re, you know, up on landscaping, but it just doesn't make sense. Trees like that are very valuable, even for like a property. So no part of it makes it, it made me sad too, for the people that do that. Think about it. If you're, you know, and they, they don't know better and their priority is feeding their families and their priority is, you know, creating a home for, for their unit, but it just makes no sense. And it's so heartbreaking. And I just feel so sad today. You know, I feel so, but it's happening all over the world all the time. And this was a situation where I was faced with the loss of these beautiful trees. And I just want to remember them in the right way. I wonder how, because you're so eloquent, like, could you write to someone? Could you post this publicly? You know what I mean? I just don't think it's right. I called the city. I wasn't able to get in touch, but... I agree. And we never got a notice. And I'm going to be writing to the management. They didn't notice us. So we need to know if someone's chainsawing outside my window at 7 a.m. Completely. Please just hit me with a text. Out of courtesy. Out of of legality. I was telling the guy that was like working. I was like, oh, this is illegal. And he's like, it's legal, but I do it. I'm like, no, it's illegal. It's, It's not legal. He's like, it's illegal, but I do it. I was like, it's it's not legal. And he's like, it's legal. I don't do it. So he was like saying he like thought it was wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, and I'm out of here, dude. Oh, well, it's just sad because I think, you know, as you were saying, just they, you know, are providing for their families and like it is work that they can do. But I mean, in perhaps their native country, wherever they are from, like I would imagine that nature is something that they hold very dear to their heart and something that, perhaps their family has, you know, taught them to value and honor and how quickly you forget when, you know. Push comes to shove. Mm -hmm. I think while you were, because I talked to you before, no, I talked to you after, but it was ironic because earlier this morning I took a hike that I had never been on Mm. and it's in, I guess, technically Brentwood, but it's called, it's off of Kenter. So if anyone's in LA, I highly recommend this, but go to the top of Kenter. And as you hike, you're kind of slowly, you know, raising elevation and at one of the peaks. As you do in hikes. I know, but like, (laughs) but it's not like one of the- Like steep. Yeah, yeah, it was steep. Like one peak and then there's Mm. another peak, whatever. And then there's this beautiful oak tree at the top of this one hill. 
and it's just been untouched. Like it's probably, I don't even know, at least a hundred years old. It is so massive and so um, sturdy. And I mean, I can imagine that the roots are like reaching like Mm. trees and bushes, like far and wide. It's just like this massive like presence. But I was thinking of like how much trees see and like how they're so like rooted and sturdy and just see so much chaos and all the things, whether it's weather or pollution or people, whatever it is. And they just stay really rooted and grounded if hopefully untouched, but I'm sorry about that. I just want, like, just saw the tree and I, I was like this tree morning. Life. It's just kind of a it's weird first, theme, full circle. theme Did today. you see um, the post of the um, famous gorilla, her last message to humanity before she died? I don't think so. She is, um, so it's Coco, who was one of the um, silverback gorillas known for learning sign language. She passed away at 46. Her message to humanity was so cute. We can share it in the um, the Facebook group, but basically it's like, I am gorilla, I am flowers. I love man, man loves me, but humans are stupid. They're not respecting mother earth and time is running out. And it was very like profound and cryptic in a way and beautiful and powerful. And it's, you know, him signing, her signing, but it was very special and it's very ominous. You're like, okay, wow, where'd you get that? You know, where'd you get that information? It was beautiful. Do you think, do we know if animals are intuitive? I know not like humans, but you know what I'm saying? Maybe it's even more than humans. You don't even know. So there's a study by Rupert Sherdock that I can also share in the group too. Um, he's a really famous scientist on like consciousness mm. and he is one of the people that believes in like a collective consciousness. And one of those, his most famous studies was with rats. Mm. And he had these rats in a maze working for food basically. And he had two tunnels for the maze. One had a light, one didn't have a light. So in the study, the rats would be fed at the end of the maze that had no light. So it's kind of counterintuitive. You think when the light goes off, you're going to get fed. So it would be the light going off and they would go to the light because they believed that was the point they were getting fed, but they'd actually end up going, you know, but the food was actually where the light wasn't. So over time, they finally learned, you know, took however many, however long um, for them to figure out that they would be fed at the point that didn't have the light. And then he would go around the world to different places. You know, he did his first study somewhere, maybe Russia, I'm not exactly sure. And then he would go somewhere in Switzerland and do the same study. And each time he would do the study in different places around the world with different rats, the amount of time it would take for the rats to figure out that they would be fed at the point that is not lit was cut down significantly, almost to the point where it would take seconds for the group of rats to figure out that they would be fed at the point where there was no light. So these rats are from different places, different situations. And it's almost like the collective consciousness is what educated them and told them that this is where you're going to be fed. So this is almost goes to like an evolutionary standpoint where you think about where we look at animals and we are like, why do they do that? You know, why do they evolve to go to that certain flower or, you know, pollinate that place or, you know, koalas eating that certain type of food only. And they think it's because of a collective consciousness of the species of animals that allows them to, you know, evolve in that way. 
and without communication like we have too with internet and phones and stuff like that too. But it also speaks to the fact that there's probably a collective consciousness with humans too. You know, when we talked about dreaming, we talked a lot about collective consciousness. And when we're dreaming at night, we go into our subconscious state, you know, where you're very relaxed and it's almost like the collective consciousness kind of rises at that time. And that's also what I think about as it relates to meditation. So meditation is so important, not only for yourself, but when you think of a collective consciousness and kind of clearing a collective consciousness, you have to start with yourself. So I don't know how I got there, but I- Well, I think there, no, yeah, it makes complete sense. And I think there's so much stuff just on, you know, in the human realm in the way. So if you're not meditating, if you are- not remembering your dreams or tuning in or not getting in, you know, sleep at all. I think it would be um, really hard to tap in, but like technology gets in the way. I think literally the frequencies get in the way of our ability to connect on a conscious level and then just the distractions and the worry and the fear. But yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think because animals don't have any of that, I think their fear is different. Their fear is more literally animal instinct, but... Mm-hmm. But where does instinct come from? Mm-hmm. Collective consciousness, you know? So it's... Yes. But Rupert Sherdock is the... That um, scientist, and he's one of the greats. So well, highly okay. suggest. So on the podcast today, we have Sam Bailey. Sam is awesome. I actually heard about Sam Bailey from her series, uh, web series, Brown Girls, um, which was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Short Film Comedy or Drama Series in 2017. So that piqued my interest. I saw her in the Chicago list, I think for top 50, like coolest people in Chicago. (laughs) I don't know what it is. Sounds right. Sam, don't kill me. Probably was coolest, most awesome people. Um, And I thought it was very interesting. Her work with her partner, Fatima, is amazing. And We are excited to have her on the show today to tell us her story. Yeah, she's really been changing the landscape of who we see in movies and series um, behind the camera as a director, writer, um, more women of color. The statistics are crazy. I believe she discusses it in the interview itself. Um, But women in this industry need to see more of themselves you know, it's just, it is, it's hard to imagine being able to do it if you don't see it. So thank you, Sam. Uh, she also, if you're interested, um, before Brown Girls had a series called You're So Talented and, um, it highlights a Chicago artist and as she navigates her twenties. So really relevant to all of you who are going through the same. So you can check that out. It's presented by Open TV. Exciting. So thank you so much, Sam, for adding new and needed voices to our narrative and being a inspiration to us all. We are so excited that you joined us on the podcast. Yeah. And just to highlight a few things that you all should know about, we have events coming up on February 9th. We will be hosting an event in Los Angeles, in Venice at Sage Wellness with Alexandra Roxo. It is going to be sexual. Oh yeah. Juicy. Really fun. Really good. It's going to be a workshop. So a little bit longer than our normal events and it'll be on a Saturday. So get your tickets at almost30podcast.com. And what else? I'm trying to think. 
we're gearing up to get head on tour. So please check out our website for updates. We are coming to cities that we have not been to yet, as well as going international. And we will be visiting colleges as well. So if you are at a college or know someone at a college or have contacts at a college or university, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at events at almost30podcast.com. Excited to be with you guys this year again. Excited for everything that's happening with us. And thank you for sharing what's happening with you in the secret Facebook group on Instagram. And every time you DM Lindsay and I or send us an email, we are so grateful. So enjoy this episode. Make sure you are subscribed. If you have not written a review, please do. It takes full seconds um, and we really appreciate it. All right, guys, enjoy this conversation and we'll see you on the other side. There was one girl we were friends with, or I, I was introduced to, and she's an architect and she like talked about stuff like that. And that, like, from an outsider's perspective, I have an understanding of gentrification, but you know, and I've seen it, whatever, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't think about architecture as it relates to that. Mm-hmm. And that was part of like what she did was like thinking about how like architecture or how design could be more integrated into cities mm-hmm. and where people mm-hmm. live instead of like just putting a modern building in an area like Humboldt Park or something yeah, like that. Yeah, which you, is where I'm like, I'm from Humboldt Park, a okay. square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so these like beautiful brownstones that are there, these yep. huge buildings end up getting taken out and these like gray boxes come out with yeah. like, you know, floor to ceiling windows, which is like dope. But if you want that, you go to the Gold Coast or if you want that, totally. you go to the Loop, you know? And I think that's kind of amazing about Chicago is that there's so, so many of the different uh, neighborhoods have their own uh, visual uh, DNA, mm, right? So mm-hmm. when you take that away, then it's like, oh, we're just all the same city, no matter where you go around the country, and mm. that that feels sucky. Totally. Yeah. You know. Do you think it's like sh- Google or what do you think as like or like some of those companies? I guess I don't mean to like blame it on the big companies because mm. I'm not like uh, someone like that, but like, what do you think it is this the gentrification that's pushing sh- in Chicago? Oh, I mean, I think it has uh, like roots that go far beyond and before Google, but like that is all part of it as well, right? Like there's redlining and there's, you know, there was like the great white flight was when Mm -hmm. everyone moved to the suburbs and then these, you know, people of color had to be in those neighborhoods and and dealt with a lot of like really horrible restrictions in terms of how to like buying houses and stuff for themselves. And then the city becomes cool again and artists start slowly moving in and then, um, you know, like... uh, people with money start coming in um, and then it changes the DNA again. So it's something that happens often and it's like cyclical mm. to a certain extent. Um, but it's, you, you almost can't put it on to one thing because it's so systemic. Totally. You know, the, yeah, I'm like racism, classism. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of what is the great white flight? I don't know what that is. I mean, I think it, it was, it was when like, like during the great migration yeah. when like black people came in from the south and yeah. they moved to like Detroit and Cincinnati and Chicago and yeah. all those places and like white people moved out because they didn't want to be sharing their communities mm. with mm. those okay. people wow. and there's probably like I'm not a history buff there's probably a deeper way totally. of explaining that um, a more easy. layered way yeah, yeah but wow. yeah. I often think about like what is kind of the explanation of you know when people come in and build these new apartment complexes, they build these new businesses that seem to kind of stick out like, you know, a sore thumb. Like, what is their explanation? Like, what are they telling people that will appease them? Is it Mm. like, well, this, this creates more jobs and this creates like, I'm always wondering about, yeah. What, what is like, what language are they using to justify just kind of 
coming in, changing everything, you know, mm-hmm. uprooting families, creating housing that's unaffordable to a lot of people. Um, I mean, it's happening a lot, I think, in even just like near us, we see it. I think mm-hmm. in Venice, Santa Monica, although they are like getting to be like wealthy areas, but like you just see this like modern apartment building all of a sudden, like where where did that come from? But I, mm-hmm. I wonder what the language is like to make people like believe that this is a good thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like they, they don't, for them to like buy out poorer people's place. Like I think obviously just the money is like wanting that money is like yeah. a good enough thing, but I don't think they have to like sell it to the neighborhood. It's kind of like they have the money. So they have, yeah, the they just don't give a fuck. Yeah. yeah. Mm. In Venice, they have, um, I work with Venice community housing, mm-hmm. BCH, and they do like affordable housing units within Venice. So they mm-hmm. have like eight buildings that provide affordable housing for people. And it's just like, it's now working with them. Like it's weird how I've been the groups and communities that I've worked with. Like I worked with Habitat for Humanity mm-hmm. in Chicago for a long time. And it's like, it's so important to, provide this for cultural reasons mm-hmm. for like keeping diversity within a place like Venice. Cause without something like that, it could get bought out so easily. Like mm-hmm. think about how much money could be working within Venice. So having like opportunities where people of all colors, races, ethnicities can afford to actually live in the city or else mm-hmm. it would just be completely like whitewashed. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's just so important that there is affordable housing in all areas and that it's like provided. That's why I liked working with Habitat because mm-hmm. like with Habitat for Humanity, it doesn't just give, what what's important about it is it doesn't just give a free apartment or home to mm-hmm. someone. They have to pay for it. They have to finance it. And then they learn within that how to build credit, how to pay for something responsibly, like how to actually take care of and manage a home. It's like, mm-hmm. it just gives someone like a leg up to actually mm-hmm. buying a home in an area that they maybe wouldn't like be able to afford. Which is amazing. Yeah. I don't know how we got on this. (laughs) Chicago talk. (laughs) Talking about rent. Yeah, talking about rent. (laughs) Literally, it's like so funny because like here every, er, because I've lived in where Chicago, New York and here, it's like I ask everyone how much their rent is. I do too. I'm a savage about it. I'm like, how much are you paying? Because it's like, we all need to know and like compare and like understand. Yeah. Because it's all so crazy. It's actually fucked up. I've used to, I've gotten to paying an exorbitant amount of money for rent. It's not okay. Mm-mm. Going from yeah. New York to LA, you oh, know, yeah. like how much was your rent in New York? Um, well, I was with someone else. I mean, it's chump change to what I'm paying now, but for me at the time, it was a lot. It was like fifteen hundred yeah. in a two bedroom, small. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. but the whole thing was like thirty one. See, that's thirty two. That's exactly what I think about New York. That's yeah. Crazy. <laughs> in in Chicago, mine was I paid nine hundred at the most. Yeah, and I was, but I was like Lincoln Park, uh, Southport. Yeah, which areas. is considered like expensive neighborhoods. Yeah. 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 So it was like, and I don't know if I felt that was expensive or not. I'm not really sure. But then in New York, it was like all bets are off. Yeah. You know, I'm living <laughs> in like a studio in Queens um, for so, so much money. Yeah. I know. It's insane. Yeah. Well, we're so happy to have you here, Sam. Yes, honey. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We, uh, Give me all this guy. She's wearing this fucking beautiful. <laughs> Red. I know. I know. Can't stop drooling. Yeah. I'm like, it's soft too. And probably like many pictures of me in this dress. Actually, I wear Dude, it quite a bit. That, that is the story thing. of our life. That is the story of our life. Kristen and I will like get something to wear and we will, because we see each other mostly every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll just wear it five days in a row. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
would don't you, if it care. makes you feel good like yeah <laughs> you find a thing i bought these um dickie's jumpsuits on amazon oh, yeah like 25 I, I have one that's red i need to too. see this <laughs> wait is it like an overalls yeah yeah the coverall yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, i have that i have in black i want to get in a couple other it's colors it's the shit yeah right, i need to comfy. see this i got it at like a <laughs> little thrift store overalls ah <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. yeah, but in red and they're shorts and I like... Oh, they're shorts? Yeah, and it's like red... Or no, no, short sleeve. Oh, short sleeve, short um, sleeve. But it's red like this red, so it's super bright. Oh, Fuck yeah. on. Okay, okay well, we're going to have those next week. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> Almost 30 now is a uniform. Oh, I get it. They had, oh, yeah. it at, like, they had it at like Urban and shit. Oh, yeah, something, something like that. That's yeah. cute. But I bet you it's cheaper on Amazon. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Damn, that's so dope. Oh, yeah. that's that shit. Hides yeah. every part of my body. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Paint a house. Yeah. Sam is the co-creator of Brown Girls web series on HBO. And yeah, I just, I'm so curious kind of where you're from and how you grew up and what was kind of your creative origins. We're both creatives uh, in different ways. And so I'm always just so curious, like when that little spark started. So I grew up in Chicago. I have a lot of family in Chicago. Uh, I grew up like the Logan Square, Humboldt Park area, what we were talking about earlier. I mean, I, I grew up like super religious. I was like hella Baptist. Really? <laughs> like in church oh like four God. or five days a week. Wow. Yeah. And like in the way that like, it was one of those churches that like everyone was related in some way. All of oh. my, like my play aunties were a part of the choir. My mom was really um, involved in it. So that was a huge part of my life when I was, when I was younger. Um, and I sang in choir and I, there was a time where I thought I was going to be a singer and I was doing like musical theater in grade school and in high school. But it was probably, yeah, I think freshman year of high school, I kind of had two options, which, which was either like play volleyball or do this theater extensive, intensive with Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. Um, and so I picked the latter. I picked the theater. Did you have to audition? <laughs> yeah, we had audition. And oh, I was cool. like too young to audition. I think the cut, the, the age was supposed to be like 15. It was supposed to be 15 to like 18. And I was 14. And I was like, just like, I begged them to let me audition or whatever. And they, they let me do it. And I got in. Um, and that was pretty much, that's changed like my trajectory in terms of me being like a diehard, wanting to do theater, loved acting, loved um, Chicago's theater community in general. So um, strong. Yeah, it's super strong. It's super tight knit. Um, for for better or for worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then I like I we moved to Indiana my senior year of high school and I hated it. Where in Indiana? Lawrence, Indiana. Okay. Why'd you hate it? Because uh, I and like I'm a That'd city girl uh, through and through, right? Yeah. So I had never even like it reminded me. I remember thinking that it reminded me of Dawson's Creek and like Dawson's Creek might as well be yeah. Mars for me True. compared to like how you grew up in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt very much out of my element um, there. So immediately when I graduated, I moved back to Chicago um, and then I went to Columbia College for theater and it was all about acting and I didn't even like want to really, uh, I remember like not really wanting to graduate. Like I almost dropped out a couple times, uh, just like super, like I'm just, I was just ready to go do what I wanted to do. So then I moved to New York right after I finished school. Um, and I didn't like the, I didn't like really love the theater scene out there. So I came back and did a play in Chicago and then got tired of that. The Aquarian in me. I know, like <laughs> always moving, yeah. Always moving and changing. Um, and so a couple years ago, in like 2014, I wrote a web series and then shot, directed, uh, acted in it. And it opened up in Tribeca and it changed my trajectory again. And then that was all of a sudden a filmmaker. Um, yeah, and then I did like two incredible. seasons of that. Then I got on the Brown Girls and then I moved out here last March. 
When you're doing theater, this is dumb, but like, how do you get paid <laughs> when you're acting in theater? Depends. Do you get ticket sales? Depends. You get stipend. It mm-hmm. depends. Okay. So like certain houses will give you um, like a quarter, a, a percentage of ticket sales, which I try not to do. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you already don't get paid a lot. Yeah. Like, totally. you know, Chicago has this um, like the black, black box theater scene, which is like non-loop or off-loop theater, non-union off-loop theater. And so you get like stipends. Um, if you're lucky, you're getting like $200 a week. Uh, and then if you're at the bigger houses like Steppenwolf or The Good Man or those, you have like a, a slightly better range of money because of like the unions and stuff like that but it's no it's not anywhere really near what you would get like on broadway so unless you're doing like a broadway in chicago show so it really is like piecing together different ways of making money so like i nannied i was a teaching artist i worked at a gym up until the end of 2016 chicago athletic club yeah yeah so So many creatives work there like they were actually it's kind of a crazy company but um they were really good about hiring artists at the front desk and they were super flexible so people would leave do a tour come back get their job like yeah it was pretty that first web series what was that first web series and then did you what did you learn doing that because i'm sure that first kind of like baby that you birthed Mm -hmm. had a lot of like lessons oh yeah i mean that one was called you're so talented Mm -hmm. and it was i was going through a stage in theater because i so i broken up with my boyfriend who was also an actor and then also i was in a play where i got asked to like twerk in a slave costume with like a rifle pointing out to the audience Sorry, what? Yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> so that was the play. Like, there, it's so interesting because- like, Was it making a point? It was supposed to be a satire on slavery. And there were so many things that like I had had hesitancies about before taking the, the gig. But like as an actor, especially coming up through like a, an, a serious training of acting, you're kind of taught that like, you know, you take the role. There's no such thing as a small role. It's like you kind of have, you're there to service the script, all this other stuff. So it was a lead role in a, in a play with a company that I was affiliated with. Um, but I always had like hesitancies. And when that got added into the script, I was like, I can't do it. So I had dropped out. Um, my boyfriend and I at the time had broken up like on my birthday. It was like really like one of those, I think it had to be like 25, something like that. And I was like, oh, this is like a lesson. Like, why is God trying to? Fuck <laughs> <laughs> and so I had written this series about a girl who is like dissatisfied, finds out that she's kind of like dissa- dissatisfied with acting and doesn't know like what she wants to do next. But she's also like looking for the next like inspiration through men in a way and and it obviously does not work out right for her and so that series I mean I had no idea what I was doing so I look back on that time and being like man you were so fearless back fearless then. yeah that's what I'm gonna say like so fearless so fearless like now like when I start something I'm like oh, I know what, like the armor I have to put on and get ready for but back then it was just I was excited to try a new art form I mean I learned so much in terms of like collaboration right which I'm a big I'm a big a believer in collaboration, but I don't think everyone is the right collaborator for everyone, if that makes sense. So I learned a lot about who I, I want to create with and who I want to um, share my artistic space with and and to not be so freeing about that. And that's a recurring lesson that probably happens every 10 months or so with me. <laughs> it's like, oh, is this someone like you need to build with? Is this someone that like supports you and you can support them? And in the first season, You're So Talented, that wasn't uh, I found like a DP, a cinematographer who I love to this day. Like he was the one who told me I was a filmmaker, like very, very supportive of me. But I had a co-director on because I didn't like trust myself at that time and then realized 
very early on that not only was I doing all the work, but like he, he just wasn't the right person to tell that story. And so like we came, me and the DP decided to go on the second season and I would direct all of like, I'd be the official director on it. Um, And it really like changed everything. I just got to be a lot more confident in my, like in my role as a director. And it still took me up until probably like last year to be, uh, feel comfortable calling myself like a filmmaker. So yeah, I mean, learning about that, learning how to deal with a lot of people because I've been writing for a long time and that had been like, that's such a solitary act. And then when you're on set and you're, and you're or even before you're on set, when you start pre-production, you know, you're, there's so many other energies and, and, and people and they all have their baggage and you have your baggage and you're coming together to kind of serve a project. But uh, learning how to navigate that uh, is always, once again, like a lesson that I'm constantly learning. Mm. Yeah, that is like freaking hard. It's interesting you say about the co-director. So you had mm-hmm. a co-director on it first. Yeah. I feel like we've actually heard that. So uh, like, it's kind of a theme with a lot of the women that we've interviewed is kind of like at first they invite a man to help mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. do, you know, get started. Jessica Alba with The Honest Company. I remember I saw a speech with her at Summit mm-hmm. and she had, she invited a bunch of men to help her start the company, but then realized like, this is my idea. Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a few others. It's so funny how that's like, your initial thought. And then you're like, I don't need, you know what I mean? Then you're kind of like, realize you're like, I don't need anyone else. Yeah. It's just like that initial fear. You're like, okay, I kind of want to get something to help me. Yeah. And I was like afraid because I was acting in it as well. I didn't know like the technical stuff, but then I sat down with Mateo, who was the DP and we like talked for hours about movies that I liked, things that I was my, my vision for everything. And you know, we made our shot list together and I was like, Oh, Oh, that's what that is. Like, yeah, like you learn as you go as a filmmaker. And I think that with any like marginalized community, if you are stepping out, doing something and you're making a, you're taking a risk in in a certain way, there's this pressure that we put on ourselves to be perfect, right? So we have to, whatever way we can like make it less of a risk, whatever that can like make it easier for us because everything has to be so, so much better on your first try. Um, I think that we, we tend to do that. Or I, I definitely thought about, you know, that was the reason for me to have a co-director at first. And then I realized that I was doing everything my goddamn self anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, I was like, fuck it. Like, what, like what's going what's gonna to happen? Like, nothing's... And I was still thinking I would just go back to acting anyway. Mm. Um, so I was like, why share this with him? Yeah, deserve it. You're <laughs> such a good actress. Columbia College, where is that? That's in Chicago? Mm-hmm. Downtown, not to be confused with the university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is the, the bougie one. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like you know, as a woman of color, as a creative and, you know, kind of like growing up, coming up and growing through systemically like white places. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious as to like what your experience has been and how, you know, what the conversation with yourself and others have been as you've kind of like literally paved the way Mm -hmm. for women of color. I mean, I think I come from a lineage of other like uh, filmmakers of color who I think are doing like really amazing mm-hmm. things. So, right. The reason why I wasn't like a huge film buff because I was so like theater oriented. So the things that got me interested in the film were like web series from like Numa Perrier and Issa Rae. Issa Rae. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number one. Um, and, and uh, like, there's just those filmmakers. And then like Francis Bodomo, who's in New York and, Shaka King, like all the Terrence Nance, who are, they're doing that like uh, random acts of flyness show mm-hmm. right now, which is amazing. Like, so good. Those are the filmmakers that really like turned me on and got me excited about about stuff. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I like those. They definitely pushed the door open. And I think that that made my time a lot easier. But I think like a lot of the times 
I, I mean, I operated in a lot of white spaces in Chicago, um, was often like the only person of color in the room, was often the only person of color, like in a friend group, especially in the theater community, because that also felt very segregated um, in a really shitty way. And in like a lot of my conversations, you know, it took me a long time to be able to like, just be really comfortable within myself. So before I felt like I'd be in these spaces which felt very blue collar and, and very Midwestern and is also a part of my like my DNA, but they were often always white spaces too. And I would like make a joke about my blackness before they could make a joke. And it was like a way of like making them feel safe around me. And I don't do that anymore, right? Like that's not, I don't feel like I have to walk around eggshells um, in that way. I'm just like, this is who I am. And if I decide to be in that space, I decide to be in that space. And you kind of have to take me as my whole being. And that's been really cool as I've gotten older. I think I've been able to do that. But at Columbia, I mean, there was only of like the black actors that were working <laughs> at school. There's only like five of us. Really? Yeah, yeah. And one of them is uh, Shea Coulee, who was on Drag Race and should have won like two years. Oh, ago. fuck. Yeah. Um, but we always talk about how we used to like walk through the hallways and kind of do like a nod to each other of like, "You out here? I see you. Yeah. <laughs> like, I respect you." Um, and there was this like small little support group between the five of us um, there and they're all doing really, really amazing things. I think only one of them is actually only officially acting now, but everyone else like playwrights, amazing international drag queen, like all this stuff. So like, I really, we just really support each other. I, I guess I just, I found like how important it is to have sisterhood and community around you that also like doesn't necessarily have to look like you, but I like the idea of having people that like are around and there's almost an unspoken understanding around our experiences. And then I try not to focus too much on like the shitty part of it, which is, well, and mostly, you know, I don't have to because I, I work really hard, especially out here to um, surround myself with people that I don't have to continue to explain myself or my experience to them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. Just really quick. I want to just finish up the one thing that you were talking about, the, the play that you dropped out of because of the slave twerking with the mm. rifle. So how did you have that conversation? Like what, like, what did you, like it, it, I could just imagine in that situation, like, do you educate them? Like, are you like, like, what do you do? Like, it was really bad. Cause I had had, um, a lot of those people were my friends at that time. And I had just gotten like a offer to be part of the company. And it was like the first person of color who was on the performance st- size uh, of the, of the company. I had told them from the beginning, you know, like this is, this feels a little risky in a way that I'm not entirely mm. sure is like edgy, you know, yeah. it's not, <laughs> it's not yeah. edgy. This is like, might be like not great. And so I had already accepted the role knowing that I had huge reservations about it. And I remember like, it was really stressful because I kept trying to talk to the one ensemble member who I was like closest with and it just wasn't working out. There's like tension in the air I feel during you. rehearsal. Like I could just mm. tell like everyone kind of knew something was up, but then no one wanted to talk to each other. So it was like a really weird, really weird environment. And then I think we were like a week before tech and I sent an email. Like I was like, I had opened up my, my script to like start learning my lines. And I just started crying. Aww. And I was like, <sighs> okay, you can't you can't do this. Like whatever is going to happen to you, like it's going to happen. And I just like sent the email um, because I'm horrible at confrontation. Uh, (laughs) And then you uh, see the next day, you're like, hey, what's up? Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, I have an understudy. I will sit there. I'll train her like the fight choreography. I'll do whatever. I'm like, but I cannot go on and do like a month and a half run on the show. And I got told I'll never work in the city again. I got told that that I was difficult to work with, that I didn't like, I mean, so many, all types of gaslighting that can come at you came at you, which is why I, I turned to writing at that time. Cause I, I thought wow. that was true that I like, kind of lost my community in that way. 
Jokes people on them, say motherfucker. that. <laughs> like, people say you're never going to work in this city yeah. again. That's yeah. the funniest thing I've ever heard. Well, it's yeah. a direct, you know, it's like, it says so much about where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. <laughs> I mean, who are you to the say? The defensiveness is like, wow. Like, yeah. But you can't even, I don't even know if I was in a world to be able to teach them. Yeah, like, about that. Other than I know we all no. went to a bar and like had a conversation where it was like I was emotional because like you don't leave plays like especially it's such mm-hmm. Chicago has a blue collar approach to its arts too. So like you go there, you do the work. It's about doing Feel the work. And so like there's for me to walk out of anything, it costs a lot to do that emotionally, you know. And I just remember being like, this is how I felt, and da 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 da, and it was just not being received. And it was horrible. But the minute I left the bar and I was like, uh, they pretty much told me I was going to be not be part of the company anymore. There was like a weight off my shoulder. Mm. There's a weight. And after that, I was able to focus on what got me here now, which is, which is dope. <laughs> What's your relationship with your family? Like, how did they kind of like see your art? I don't have much of a relationship with my family. Um, so my mom was, my mom died freshman year of college. Mm. Um, she passed away from cancer. And she was probably, she was definitely the most supportive of that. Like she would, she would come to my plays like multiple times. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I see some like really bad plays. I think she saw in me something that I didn't see in myself at that time, which was like, I remember she told me at, at one point when I was like, right when I moved into the dorms and she died a, like a couple of days later, but we were on the phone and me and my sister had fought. Um, and she was like, you know, don't go get famous and forget about where you came from. And I remember being like, I'm moving, to, I'm going to fucking college. I'm going to theater school. What do you mean famous? Like, what are you talking about? Um, uh, and it was a thing that like has sat with me for a while, like in the, um, in retrospect, but I think, you know, my sisters and my dad, everyone's just so, so different. And so like my oldest sister is a doula living in Louisiana and she is like, it's a world that I could never, I don't think I would ever do, but if she's not the happiest, I mean, she like is, it is her calling to do that. Right. And my other sister works as a social worker in, in Atlanta and same, like she's a big traveler. Like that is her calling. And often sometimes I'm like, Oh, I want to be like, you know, this is what you should be doing. And I'm like, Oh no, actually the, if there's one thing that unites us is that everyone seems to like be walking in their path, whatever that path is. But I don't talk to my dad much um, and I don't talk to my little brother much. And I think that's just, you know, it was a really, when my mom passed away, we were all in very transitional points in our lives and it kind of just like severed those connections. But what I will say is that like, I am really close to my godmother, who was my mom's best friend um, and her kids. And what my mom always had was a, a group of chosen family. And I have a strong, strong chosen family. Like, ride or die these are people that like i would easily step in front of you know a gun for like i trust these people um they've they've had my back and and vice versa so in that way i feel like i have actually like a like a very um intense and like strong familial uh support system they just don't happen to be blood related Mm. well i see it we see it in brown girls Mm -hmm. like that those female relationships and we're kind of learning too through the podcast both chris and i were never really you know, close to a lot of girls, you know, middle school, high school, college. And it's this really beautiful full circle moment where, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of reconnect with, you know, females in the community and see each other for who you are rather than what you're not. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I just see it in the series. It's so palpable, yeah. the relationships. I mean, yeah. I think Fatih and I kind of have a similar approach to our friendships. And I mean, there's something beautiful about having friendships with women. 
in mm-hmm. in in femme and queer people. Like I think mm-hmm. there's like a, a like a you know an understanding there and just like this openness to be yourself yeah. and be accepted in, in yourself. And I mean, yeah. there are definitely men in my life who are like very good friends of mine. But there's also like there's just something about being able to talk to another woman about yeah. Things. There's like an yeah. emotional fluidity. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like with female relationships, femme, queer, you know, gender non-conforming. It's like, it's just, and there's a deepness that you can have too. That's Mm -hmm. like a little bit harder to get there with the men that I've had. I'm trying to think of my man friends. But I'm trying to think of like times when like I was like a guy's girl, right? Like I'm I'm friends with all the guys and it's like, why? Mm. Yeah. Because I kind of wasn't comfortable Mm. with some parts of myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like slipping into a more feminine Mm -hmm. side of myself wasn't Mm -hmm. as comfortable. Well, if you're taught that it's a bad thing, like then, and then the people that are telling you that like, oh, we're accepting you because you're not that, then of course you, you know, you, you develop a complex of like, let me like shut that part of myself down. But the reality is that you end up only hurting yourself in that, I think. Yeah, I think the times of me and, you know, I felt that like when, you know, when I was like the only black person in a group of like white friends constantly, like I just felt so aware of myself. Oh, yeah. In not a good way, you totally. know, not like self-aware and good way, but like yeah. super yeah. hyper aware of like everything I did, everything I said and whether or not that was taken the right way. Um, so I try really hard to make sure that my the people I surround myself with um, is just a, from kind of a mixed bag. Do you remember like a time when you were like, oh, fuck, this is what it feels like to not feel that way? Like, was there like a time with a group of friends or something where you're like, oh, damn, I actually wasn't thinking about what I was saying or who I was yeah. or what I looked like? I mean, the group of friends I have now, um, I've had since I was like 19 and we spend every holiday together, um, mm-hmm. like big Christmases, big this. And every now and then I'll go see family or I'll go with another, like a partner to their like holiday stuff. And you feel like this, <laughs> like super, mm-hmm. super tight. And then I go there and I'm like, man, it's just so beautiful to like not think twice about like, no matter, you're not going to get cornered by someone you don't fuck with. Like at, yeah. at, at any moment, you're just like everywhere I go, there's just love. Yeah. love. And you can tease each other and it doesn't feel like it's ever like malicious. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. There's just good vibes. And those are the people I like I ride with all the time. I love that. Um, I've like chosen, I relate to the chosen family thing too. My Mm -hmm. family isn't close and we're all kind of just doing our own thing Mm -hmm. on our own paths. And we've never, I've never felt like a deep, you know, I love them Mm -hmm. very deeply, but I've never felt like an affinity or an attachment to like be where they are or do what they want me to do. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt like the people that I choose to have in my life are like more important to my growth. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, they meet you where you are at that point in your life. So it's not like they have an idea of who you should be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, or cause it's like when I'm hanging out with my mom, it's like, she thinks of me as the 12 year old that was like stealing my clothes from my sister. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I'm kind of always to get out of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm always that person or something like that. So to like be an adult mm-hmm. and feel like I've had so many experiences, it's like nice to hang out with people that actually like have seen me on my journey or like recognize me as that. Yeah. And are growing with you. Yeah. Growing with you. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I think that's really important to have people that can hold you accountable. Yeah. That like see, see you, but see you like as you're becoming who you're probably going to be for the, <laughs> for the majority of your life, you know? Um, and so that to me has always been like a really dope thing with, fr- with friendships. Um, and I also like, I think Fatina talks about that all the time, but like we rarely talk about, 
the intensity of friendships, right? Like romantic relationships are for some reason are like on a higher level than friendship relationships. Like that friendship love isn't on the same level as romantic love. And I think it should be. Like if you ever have like broken up with a friend, like especially as women, I think those breakups have been infinitely harder than me than actual like romantic breakups. Um, And there's a reason for like, there's a, uh, like we chose to love each other that in a way that I think is a lot more pure than like, oh, I was in lust with you at first and then I fell in love with you, right? There's a little bit of like uncontrollableness that comes goes into like a romantic love. Whereas like with a friendship, you're like, I choose to be with you like at your best, your worst. I've seen you at that, like, you know, and I'm going to fuck with you. And then when those, so I, I'm always like curious as to why those aren't held in the same esteem. Um, Have you ever had to break up with a friend? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, Yeah. <laughs> what was that like? Painful and horrible. And it like it's like you're going through a divorce with your other friends, right? And they have to decide whether or not they're going to like get caught up in taking sides. And it doesn't happen often, but it's the times that it has happened has been like um like daunting and really um like, like shook me um in a way. And you you kind of cuz it's odd like we you talk about there's so many listicles about how to get over a breakup but never about like how to get over a friend breakup. Um, and sometimes it's no one did anything specific, but it's just like, you guys have grown apart. Um, your goals have changed. They don't align with each other anymore. And that's just some real ass adult shit, you know? Yeah. Um, and like learning that and learning like, who do I want to be in my life? Because if I'm going to have them in my life, I also then have to give, you know, as well. Um, and so like, who do I want to spend my energy on? Like, that's always something that I'm constantly like checking in on and making sure that they, that it's good for, for me and for them as well. Mm. Yeah. We've been talking about that in the group and our, we have a, like our secret Facebook group for mm-hmm. our girls and they've been talking about the friendship breakups too. I kind of want to like do a full episode on that. Cause that's, yeah, it's like with a relationship, I, I guess in my experience, I'm like, I'd break up and be heartbroken, but then I'd get another one. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like friends, it's like, you have so many and like, there is like a part of me that has shared not more than with my partner, but there's a difference in mm-hmm. what you share and what you talk about. Or from my experience, I guess for, for me and my female relationships and what I share is sometimes a little bit could be deeper than like what my like personal mm-hmm. relationships are about. So, I mean, friendship breakups are like, I still think about all the friends that I've like broken up with mm-hmm. or whatever, like probably like at least once a week. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you just never know if it's right. You know, yeah. like how much do you accept? Like what is, is being a good friend not giving up. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's, and that's hard, right? Cause you can have, you can have the same conversation around like, like loved relationships or, or like totally. romantic love is like, is it, I, I, but I, I do think that like, you know, I have a level of, there's like tiers of friendships that I have <laughs> and there's a, a tier, <laughs> like the people I spend the holidays with that are like, I love you in spite of all of this yeah. like it's going to take something really huge for yeah. me like when we fought we fought and not talked and did it like that has happened too but like and then we've always come together and been like it's that's not worth it and then there are people who are like uh and yet and and then we also have like the difficult conversations and then and if I could be like hey I feel like I'm giving so much and you're not or vice versa like we can have those tough conversations and, and keep it pushing and that's usually how I feel like you know if a person's worth it in your life if you can actually be like hey I'm feeling this type of way 
um, am I being weird or like, like, can we talk this out? Whereas if you're afraid of telling someone that or you're walking on eggshells, that's probably a good indicator that like, maybe that's not your ride or die, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That to be able to create space for someone to feel comfortable, to bring up things that are uncomfortable. That's all I want, really. I don't want to have to kind of censor myself, you know, yeah. like I don't want to have to worry about hurting someone's feelings. I'm never going to intentionally, but I don't know. We're learning that in business too, which mm, I kind of want to talk yeah. about. So like finding your creative partner, mm-hmm. um, Fatima or Fatima. Fatima. Yeah. How did you meet and how did you know like that? Mm-hmm. It was just like kind of a divine intersection. Yeah. I mean, so Fatima and I, we met, we met at a live lit show in Chicago through that meeting kind of worked with each other on smaller projects. So like if I was doing a live, if I was hosting a live lit show, I might ask her to read poetry when she was doing like a photography series. She has like just nude photos of me. Cause she asked me to be cool. <laughs> or like that was way before Brown girls. And then when I was doing my second season for you're so talented, she had hit me up saying that she had an idea for a web series and, um, and I was like, cool, write it. Uh, like I'm in post. <laughs> like, I was just like, I was like, but I'll read it. Like I'll give you whatever notes. Um, and then she invited me to a like a um, an, a reading out loud of it, and like a, a page in. I was just so invested in these characters and those relationships, mm-hmm. and I wrote on the margins like I have to direct this, mm-hmm. um, and kind of like cornered her afterwards. And I was like, I don't co-direct, and I need to do this <laughs> because someone else wanted to direct on it. I was like, no, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. I was like this is I want to do it, and she, you know. She was really excited about it. And I think the way I knew that it was right is because it was easy. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a fight to get together. It wasn't like a super, like a negotiation of how we were going to do it. Um, she was really open and she's such a beautiful writer. Um, and I had never directed anything that wasn't my own words. So it was like, I was like scared about doing oh. that too. Cause I was like, I have somebody's baby and we'll fuck it up. Um, but she was just so, so giving and, um, so like down to learn the process because we were still very much, I mean, I'm still learning, but you know, definitely back then that was only my third project and yeah, just how, like how easy it, it was and how like we gave, we gave each other space to do what we were doing. So like, you know, I would give notes on script, but I was like, you know, you do you like, this is your writing. So do that. And then she gave me space to direct and create and all that stuff. So I think that just happened kind of without any hiccups. So that was super cool. And I think that like Fatih and I became like deep friends over that, especially after like the trailer dropped and there was all this press that, cause we just didn't, we weren't expecting anything like that to happen. So I think like, as we were going through that process, we realized that not only were we not expecting it to happen, but no one in our circle, like in our social groups had ever experienced anything like that. So we like clinged tighter to each other and like, you know, kind of got through um, that like, kind of like bumpy ride where, you know, there was a lot of exciting things that were happening, but it's also very lone, like lonely. Um, when, like the Emmy nomination, all that stuff happened. Like it was just a very, uh, we were, I felt like we were going through growing pains mm-hmm. individually and kind of we were supportive of each other through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I think the, the, the thing that really helps is that, you know, we're creative partners on Brown Girls. And then, you know, she works now with VAM, which is a production company I work for in Chicago. So we, we like work on certain things together and we're very involved in each other's creative process, but we also respect each other as individual artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really amazing because we can support each other in, in our like individual endeavors, as well as like we have a shorthand with each other. If we ever want to work on anything together again. You know, mm. I mean, as we're developing Brown Girls, which we are <laughs> continuing yeah. doing, um, but there's other projects and stuff as they come and go. We're like, hey, do you want to do this or do you want like, mm-hmm. you know, we just have a shorthand with each other in that way. I love that. 
So what was the casting process like? I mean, everyone is so fucking talented. <laughs> yeah, dude, they're fucking talented. They're good. Yeah. I mean, so for the most part, it was super easy because I come from a theater community. Yeah. So I was just like hiring and I, I hate doing auditions so much. Yeah. I hate auditions hire your so friends. much. If you can yeah. hire yeah, friends. That's so fucking yeah. true. <laughs> so a lot of the, ca- like the majority of the cast was cast through people that we knew. Nabila Hussain grew up with Fatih in, in Boston, Cambridge. And she was an engineer. And Fatih was like, I know this person who might be down to do this. But, you know, she used to act in high school. And so I was like, well, put her on tape. Like, we'll see what happens. And I, she was definitely green. But I just kept going back to her tape after seeing all the other auditions. And I was like, oh, she has such like an infectious spirit. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't like Nabila has an energy about her that I've never met anyone mm-hmm. else like it. She's like a Muppet in a... <laughs> She's like the most beautiful, like Muppet, funny, like joyful person I have ever Mm -hmm. met in my life. Um, And she and that's like super exciting to to watch. Um, And so I was like, cool, if we make sure that the supporting cast is like full of people that have been on set before and understand that, then we can be a little bit more lax with the main because I can give like a lot of my attention to them. So there's another actor that was supposed to play Patricia's role and she dropped out like 10 days before we started shooting. And she was like the first person cast. She had to because of another pro, like an, an issue had came up. Kicking herself now. <laughs> <laughs> She's dope though. She's she doing good. She's doing good. Um, but I had seen Sonia do stand up uh, at a bar in Chicago and like really liked her and thought she was dope. And she was moving to New York the week we were supposed to start shooting Brown Girls. And I hit her up like a couple of days before and I was like, is there any way I can like persuade you to uh, put your move date 10 days? <laughs> Uh, and so her partner at the time uh, moved them there. She stayed and then she shot. They met, Nabila and uh, and Sonya met the first, like that first scene of them on the bed, like cash the beer. That was the first scene that they sh- we shot. And that's how they, that's how they met. They didn't meet each other before then. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. Damn. So the, when you talked about like the press and stuff, like, yeah, what was that journey like? So you said you didn't think it was going to be, you know, this big or anything like mm. that. Like, where were you when you heard? And then, I mean, I think it was slowly, like every piece of press we got just felt like crazier and crazier because we were still in post-production. So what we did was like, we shot the series and then immediately started cutting a trailer for it. And then knowing that we were going to go and like get the, do the rest of the episodes. So, you know, we had got, I had gotten like a a good amount of press for You're So Talented and Fatih has like a huge following as a, as a poet and in Jam, Jamila was music being on. We kind of all had a little bit of our own like followings within ourselves, but I still don't think, like my goal was to premiere at Tribeca. Like that was our big goal and it was just something for the community that like our friends would like fuck with and watch and, you know, maybe get some write-ups. That was pretty much our, you know, the, the highest hopes that we had for the show. And then like more and more people just started writing about it. And it was like smaller blogs and bigger blogs. And then then we started getting like emails from Hollywood. Like it was crazy. Like I, I remember feeling like, man, I hope they like this show as much as they like the trailer. Yeah, literally. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, because I was like, we were editing it up until the day before. I think we, we turned in the episodes to L like the morning of. Uh, it was supposed to premiere. You know, it was like that because shit happens in post-production all the time. Um, so I remember just being very, like trying to stay focused on just getting this, the show done. But, the, you know, all of a sudden, you, uh, you know, we had, you know, a PR person who was handling our calendar and all this shit, which is very weird to do. Like you have totally. one foot in something fancy and then on the other side, like I was also working at a gym. Like 
sleeping on a couch, you know, like shit like that. Like it was very just an mm, odd totally. way of, of, of living. And so even when we went and like pitched it to, I mean, so all that stuff was happening before we premiered the web series, Fatih and I came out to LA. We both uh, signed with managers. And then two weeks after we premiered, we were pitching and our first pitch was to HBO and we pitched to like nine different networks. Um, and it was kind of like, I just remember me and Fatih were just talking about this, how like that, that night when we found out that like HBO and a couple other places had put in bids and offers, our managers came over and we like had this party at like our friend's house. Um, and it felt like so pure then like, wow, we just like some girls from Chicago, yeah. like doing dope shit and had no idea what the process would be. So had no idea um, that we would get the Emmy nomination like that that was kind of crazy for us because that like it takes a lot so anyone can submit for the Emmys right but there is a the TV Academy has to they have to know what you are doing for them to, for you to get a nomination like you have to have enough people and to think about like all the web series in the world and most of the times the Emmy nominations for digital short form series are like spinoffs from bigger shows so for us to like be this like little $20,000 budget web series um, who got there. I mean, it was crazy. We knew it was coming. We knew the nominations were coming the, the next day. So I kind of like woke up and like checked my phone to see if it was up and it, and it did. And it was like, that is so surreal. It was insane. Yeah. It was crazy. It's weird. Cause you just like look at your phone and you're like, Oh, I gotta go to the gym yeah I was like well, how are you gonna I think like our gas were off, was off at that point or something I don't know it was Yo, like very odd life, life yeah. is so funny like that is the craziest odd. thing yeah were yeah. you ever like frustrated by that were you ever frustrated mm. by like yeah the, the not matching yeah yeah I'm still I'm still not mad damn right like so yeah I think about it all the time I think about it all and that's why like I think if you know there's a part of me that like laughs about it because I I can tell that like, I'm on the I'm on the cusp of that you know but like it takes money to get money right so like mm-hmm. me joining Literally. the union is like twelve thousand dollars me like and I'm like I made like fifteen thousand dollars when I before I moved out here mm-hmm. like a year like fifteen to seventeen thousand mm-hmm. I wasn't making bank you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying so like all of a sudden you come out here and everything feels like monopoly money. It's like, yeah. oh, people will be like, oh, 80K is not a lot of money. I'm like, okay. <laughs> no, I'm, like, I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah, I'll take what I can get. Can you, you pay me an installment? <laughs> like, I'll take it. So, yeah, I mean, I still, we still go through that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's going to take, there's a lot of things in development or a lot of things going on. But like, like you know, Hollywood takes forever to pay people. Um, you have to pay dues, mm-hmm. uh, look, literally pay, pay dues and stuff once you start joining the unions and taxes and reps. Like, Sixty percent of my check pretty much goes to taxes, my lawyers, my agents, my managers, and my PR person. Like, like that's legit. So you're saying you're taking home forty percent of whatever the offer is, and the offer's not that great because you're new. You know, so like that's yeah. just a real, real of like, yeah. <laughs> what is that conversation like with HBO? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're one. The content is just so important mm-hmm. to be put out into the world. Like, mm-hmm. how do you kind of like? not leverage it but know your worth in that room like mm. hbo like oh 
huge. Yeah. Right? I yeah, would yeah. be insanely intimidated. Like, mm-hmm. what is the self-talk? Like, what is no, the strategy? No, there is no self-talk. I don't talk to them in terms of... Oh, so it's <laughs> and, all yeah, your manager. Yeah, your yeah, lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And we got, a, we got a good deal with HBO, but like, yeah. Were you that, in the room when they pit, when you pitched? I, yeah, we pitched. So what we pitched a pitch series. Like? Yeah, you have like a PowerPoint? <laughs> yeah, right. No, so I do make, I did make a visual deck um, of it, which felt weird because we had just like let the series come out. So we were like, well, what else do you need to see? Yeah. Um, but Watch once it. again, like when you don't know any better, like now I've been on so many pitches that I feel like my, my, my decks are so much tighter and all this other stuff mm. and our pitches are tighter. But um, we didn't know any better. Like we just went in there and we talked about the series and Fatih and I are rather charming together. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Helps. Because we're just like, oh, we don't know. Yeah. Um, and I think that they were like, they had knew about the content before. Like they wanted us to come in. Um, so that was really helpful and no one knows the story like we do. So like in that world, we definitely had the upper hand. Like there was nothing. I mean, we were scared as fuck because it was the first pitch we had ever done ever in our lives. But we also, I remember Fatih and I and our managers being like, oh, HBO's gonna be like a practice pitch. There's no way they're gonna figure it out. It's just a practice pitch. And then to come for it to come full circle and we ended up wow. like going with them is kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah. Where are you at now in that process? Um, we are getting notes back on pilot scripts and we're hopefully like hear back soon. I mean, they've been really great. So like cool. hopefully, you know, yeah. uh, HBO is like known to take its time in development, but I think that's just gonna make the show better Yes. Um, in the long run. So, you know, fingers crossed everything continues going well. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. We got you early. Proud of you. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about that. <laughs> I'm like, wow, we got you early, girl. <laughs> we're not gonna be able to get this interview in like a year. <laughs> I love brown girls. I love the fucking title. Oh, man. It's just so like, it just, I don't know. It's just fucking perfect. Like, did you know the whole time? You're like, it's going to be called brown girls. Yeah, Fatih came with it called brown love. girls. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, uh, at first a little afraid that it was going to, we were going to get too much, too many comparisons to girls about it. But Fatih like oh, had never watched the show. Yeah, yeah. She was never, it's funny. she's yeah, very yeah. much, Fatih is like a very specific, like, the things that she watches I feel like she's just like oh yeah I've never seen girls I've never seen Pearl City and she's like legit she's not being (laughs) like she's she's a genie yeah Yeah. Um, sometimes it's like I can't I don't know I can't can't watch watch stuff that's like because I I like love it and then if I'm trying to be creative I'm like yeah it's difficult to watch yeah Yeah. it's difficult to watch But yeah, I mean, I think she was just like these the people that I that hold me down and who who have like made me um, Mm. the who I am today are brown girls Mm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and all the, and in all the ways they f- like fall into the, that category. Um, and, you know, the series being about like the queer black and brown community in Chicago uh, is, is something that we both know intimately well. So mm-hmm. I think it just worked out. I love that. And I love that the, you know, they're very multidimensional mm-hmm. humans, mm-hmm. you know, and like, it's just real. And I, and it's weird to say that that's refreshing, mm-hmm. but, but it, it is. is. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm, there's usually kind of like a character description tagged to, you know, an actor of color where they are the blank, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. it's like in this, they're humans yeah. and it's just, it, it really is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's like, I think, you know, we always talk about wanting to, talk about like the characters and people in our lives who like operate in like the gray area. Right. And, um, they are not heroes. They're not saints. They're not sinners. They're just regular ass fucking people. And they're trying to like, not even figure it out. They're just trying to exist, 
you know, and all the things that happen when you try to exist in the world. And so, like, Fatih's, like, really great at connecting to the humanity in those characters. And, and, they're, and they're messy sometimes, and they're, like, you know, they're gross <laughs> in other ways. Um, but there's, like, a, an undercurrent of love in, in all those relationships that I think, um, for me, spoke to me when I read this, the, the initial script. And that's why I think a lot of people are kind of connected to it. Mm. Yeah. In, like, Hollywood or, like, in... I guess, and I don't really even know you guys know more so, but did you guys feel like being black and being Indian or being Pacific Island or whatever is underrepresented and you wanted to like really like show like a different side of it rather than just the stereotypes that you've seen? I think we just wanted to highlight people that seemed familiar to us. Right. So I don't know if there was specifically a like, let's change, you know, representation here. It was just like, let's tell these stories. And um, in our lives, these the characters that live these lives look like these people. Right. So if they're Pakistani or Bangladeshi or mixed or all those type of things, like that's what that's how vibrant my community is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to be stuck in a place where I'm trying to. to like hide away from that. Like there's no reason to. Um, so I, I don't know if it was like, we're going to do this thing and like make it um, m- like it be kind of like a political act, but like the personal is political. Right. So I think that's what we kind of ended up doing. Um, and, and, and we're proud of that. Yeah. It's so good. What it about the, so t- the table read? Like, mm-hmm. and, and kind of um, as a director working with the actors, what is the balance between like, I don't want to say pressure, but like, you know, there is weight to, you know, what you are doing Mm -hmm. um, in creating this series. And so like, what is the conversation like to kind of almost express, you know, the importance of this, but also just kind of like keep it light Mm -hmm. in that way? I mean, in in general, I think my my sets are a little hippy dippy. So it's normally very light. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think that, I'm never going to put the weight of like society on an actor's shoulders as they're going into a scene, right? So we really do talk about the moments of it and what those moments mean to each other. So like when Layla's character comes out to her sister, like I'm not, I'm not um, a queer woman, but my DP was queer and the production designer was queer and Fatih was queer. And so like there was a a world where, you know, when they got the first take done and I looked to the left and I looked to my right and, you know, it sat with them and it it sat with me. They were like, okay, we're on the right page. Let's just keep unpacking that. Let's keep unpacking that. Cause that's the way, I mean, I try to give like maybe one big macro note and then just work in the details of it um, as we go on and just and, and try to make a safe space so that the actors feel like they can be vulnerable and that they can try things. Um, and that like your job is just as important as mine. Like one can't happen without the other. And I think that's like what we tried. I try to do with everything on my set. Um, everyone on my feeling. set, you know? Yeah. You so know, sets important. I feel like they feel like militarized mm-hmm. um, because, because of men. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I really want to like take that take that idea of like a, a like this very tight like i don't know tense set i don't i want to throw away that idea i don't really fuck with that it doesn't vibe with me and i don't I think you that. get better work done in that way no either. i think the work is totally limited yeah with a set like that because yeah, then you're just worried about anything. everything that you're doing you're yeah. never gonna work in this town <laughs> um yeah how do you like give feedback like how do you give and receive feedback I would find that challenging I guess I would find that challenging as a director like your job is I guess part of your job is really to like give feedback in your creative direction of like mm-hmm. what you want the scene to be like how do you 
I'm just, I'm, per, I'm personally having a hard time within our business giving and receiving feedback mm-hmm. all the time. It's mm-hmm. like what you do. You know what I mean? Like, how do you yeah. do that? I mean, I think the best, when I've been the most successful at it is when I've taken the time to prep um, like I should so that like I'm talk, I'm meeting with every every head of the department and we're getting on the same wavelength, right? And I still give them space to surprise me or to come up with ideas that they, that we, mm. you know, we hadn't initially thought about. And I try to make sure that's an open door policy, you know, throughout. So by the time that we're giving feedback and it's like, yes or no, it doesn't come from like, it's not like coming from a malicious place or like a power place. It's like, you know, we're all trying to tell this. Are, are we all trying to tell the, the same story? Cause we should be. Mm-hmm. So like, does this align with that or does it, does it not? And, um, and I think because you take, if you take that time, you really um, like respect the people that you hired um, and, and know them to be experts in their field or are allowing them to be the experts in their field. Then it's a much easier, like, uh, you know, road to travel by being like oh i maybe this isn't exactly what i want but there's a there's a detail of that that i think you were on the right page for so maybe like let's figure out how to unpack that like that's a lot sometimes i don't know like i'm doing uh i'm working with a composer for the first time for the short film that i'm doing um and i was like i've never worked with a composer before i actually don't know how to ask you to i don't 100 percent know exactly what you do like i know you make the score but i don't know how you i don't know how Mm. to give you feedback on that and and just being honest about that has been super helpful because then she's like dope okay so this is how i normally work does that work for you and i'm like cool that totally works for me or that doesn't work for me let's like negotiate that Mm -hmm. i i think honesty 100 percent has been the best policy for me Mm. in that way I yeah. like lying. I like being a little <laughs> shysty. <laughs> yeah. Just keeping I, it compressed. Yeah. It's not good for you though. I do. Like, I know. I'm just yeah. Fucking. No, I know. But yeah. I feel like I, I, I have, like I said, like I'm not really great with, um, mm, confrontation. with confrontation, you know, and I'm trying to be better because there's a line, right? There's a line where I want to be super collaborative and I want to, um, I come up with, up with things together, but there's also a line where it's like, I am, I am the captain steering the ship. Right. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the buck ends with me. Yeah. And so I have to be able to like also, you know, keep everything on the same page mm-hmm. and on the same train and it's going like that. Mm-hmm. So there were times where I had to put a little bass in my voice and like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I got to put on my red yeah, but I don't dress. live there. I don't live there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. just more of like when it has to happen and she can come out. But for the most part, mm-hmm. I like to like live in this space. And <laughs> I, yeah. I think creatives, it's funny, like creatives like to kind of flow between being led and having like their own mm-hmm. creative creative drive and leadership and mm-hmm. that's I think both are really fun for me to experience like mm-hmm. if you have a vision and I'm working with and for you I'm like lead me like take me to where your mind mm-hmm. and heart is so yeah I can kind of feel that where there are moments when you really need to kind of like plant your feet and be yeah. like this is what it is what it is yeah. yeah and it feels good for the people that are you know following yeah. you. yeah I think it's like super good for them to be able to um, know that you know what you want. Yes. You know? Yes. And I think like prep is sometimes a time to figure out what it is if you don't know. But once we're on set, you know, like I should have, have a really good handling on like what works and what doesn't work. Um, and so, and I think that makes them have more confidence in you. Uh, confidence, I'm sorry, in you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said that you grew up Baptist. Are you still you know, super religious? Are you spiritual? Like, what does your spiritual world look like? Um, Definitely not religious at all anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think, yeah, I think like spiritualism is something that, um, or spirituality is something that I found as, as something that's very personal, right? Like, and I think everyone's spiritual um, journey is very personal to them. And for me, it's just like, I don't believe that 
you know, myself is the biggest thing in the universe. You know, I feel very actually small in the universe, but mm-hmm. I feel very connected to everyone mm-hmm. in the universe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, a lot of times it's just about um, figuring out, like, am I trying, am I, am I doing like good in the world? Right. Mm-hmm. Am I being a good person? Like really common, like mm-hmm. things that actually, I feel like, you know, stretches across mm-hmm. religions as well. It's trying to like, get to the place of spirit. I, someone told me like how like religious religion feels like spirituality through like institutions. Mm-hmm. Like they just like put an institution on top of that. And then that's what fucked it up. And I, that might be too broad of a statement, but I, I do feel like spirituality is like that without the box. You know, you kind of mm-hmm. get to figure it out for yes. yourself and ebb and yes. flow and things like things change as you change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. I don't pray all the time, but I do like, you know, light some incense and light some sage. And I'll really try to like connect with my, my thoughts, especially out here, because I feel like in LA, everything is super myopic. Right. So I go to generals probably, you know, a good amount of time mm-hmm. a week. Um, and I'm there to talk about myself. So all I do is like talk about myself a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I talk about myself or I give directions to get something mm-hmm. done. Like that's kind of the, and, and it's, that's not great. Like it feels very superficial, but also like really personal in a weird way. Mm-hmm. So I like to try to like connect to my. In, Which like, generals? When you go to studios oh, and, okay. exa- and like meet people okay, and they're, okay. like, they're like, well, we want to work with you, but like, uh, it's all nebulous. It's totally. like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I go to a lot of those um, and it's just a very, like it's an odd situation to just be in a place where it doesn't organically come up. It just comes up because you have a spiel about yourself yeah. and you have to continue saying that. And then you say that so much that you feel like a, like an empty thing I hear that you know so like for me it's like how do I how do I replenish myself because I I feel like I give a lot out um whether or not it's yeah if it's on set or if it's in a meeting or events that we go to Mm -hmm. sorry um all those feel very uh draining so I have to figure out a way how to like or I'm constantly figuring out ways to like replenish myself and Mm -hmm. and refill the well Mm -hmm. um and all that seems like it's part of a spiritual journey to me Mm -hmm. you know yeah it's like religions like what other people say it should be. And then spirituality is like what you say it should be. Mm, Cause it's mm. like religion is this like thing that's been contrived. And there's these institutions and there's these processes put in place and there's these rules. But with spirituality, it's like whatever you want to make it, mm-hmm. you know, whatever feels good to you. What mm. are the rules that you want to put or what is it that you want to follow? Yeah. Rather than just like taking it down from what else mm-hmm. everyone's telling you what to do. Yeah. And I have a strong reaction about being told what to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is this short film? Um, so I did this. So before, Kyle, what happened before? This is before I directed like my first TV, on oh, the first TV show, like an episode of TV. I um, applied for this fellowship uh, with Film Independent called Project Involve. And what they do is they take like five, directors five dps five editors five um like producing fellows and throughout nine months they get paired with a mentor who's working in hollywood and then they also have to come together and make a short film Mm -hmm. so um myself and this um amazing writer named hank jones came together and we come up with a story called masculine masculine and it's a um kind of an explore it's a satirical exploration of gender roles um in a world where like the matriarchy uh operates very much like the patriarchy today but it's still very much like not quite mumblecore but it's it's like stylized and also like a slice of life Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of the the thing that we're we're straddling the line we're straddling so that premieres at the la film fest on september 20th 
Can, can you tell me more about that? Like the matriarchy acts like the patriarchy. Can you explain that more? Yeah. So we were like, you know, Hank is a, is a black man. I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. We were talking a lot about how like there's just rampant misogyny in our communities yeah. um, in a way that's like ever, never unchecked. It's just so obvious that like you go to a party and guys could be like f- feeding girls drinks and like being super aggressive sexually yeah. and, and cat calling all that stuff. And, you know, he was talking about how he feels uncomfortable around it and how like that type of stuff is usually like a mask that guys don't like a lot of times. Most of those guys don't want to do it, but that's what they've been taught as what is going to mm-hmm. get them power in the universe. Like that's their that's their trans, the transactional um, like currency is mm-hmm. power and like sexual deeds. And so we at first started the script and it was going to be like two guys going through the world. And then I was like, oh, it's not sitting well with me about something. And I was like, what if we flipped it and made them women? And just like, so they still operate. They still, like, they look like women. They're, you know, dressed in whatever, you know, feminine, you know, things, whatever that means. Um, and But they talk very, in a way that feels, I think, familiar to an audience's ear as to, in terms of like misogynistic terms, but just towards men. So they're doing that but towards men. Um, and, it, and it's not just a, I don't think it's just like a, um, calling out of how the way men treat other women. I think it's also how like men treat other men um, and how like that actually is not a helpful practice for like them. Like it's actually like hurting you guys because you can never be vulnerable with each other. That stuff isn't considered currency in that world. Like that's not, we don't need that. Um, And I think that like, yeah, you say toxic masculinity doesn't just hurt women. It hurts the the men as well. And that's kind of what we want to do it. But like, I'm a dark, comedic person so we did it in that way cool um, and Sonia is in it. that too she plays the lead cool yeah. that's so <laughs> and the Beale is in it too she has like a little <laughs> a little cameo that's so amazing yeah. September that. 20th LA yeah. Film Fest okay yeah cool this has been amazing yeah so good yeah so good so Damn, you're like I can't believe we got you before you're <laughs> it's gonna match honey. oh good your good. shit's gonna match good thank you yeah yeah I had a friend tell me recently we were like with the new moon coming out, you know, she was like, she was like, you will never be at a deficit again. We have to continue to remind ourselves that like, I think a lot of us, especially if you come from like not a lot of money or anything like that, there's like this fear that I'm going to lose stuff. I'm going to be back where I'm at. And she was like, we will never be at a deficit again. So like that fear that you have that someone's going to come and take it away. She's like, that's just a fear. You need to stop giving energy to it. It's a great reminder. And I was thinking about that yesterday because I was like in the best mood. I was just like in a fucking good ass mood. I was like, I'm in such a fucking good ass mood. I'm like, (laughs) what if something happened tomorrow to take that away? Yeah. And I was like, I cannot think like that. I need to like, Mm -hmm. I need to believe that like it only gets better. Yeah. You know, like it only, yes, there will be hard times. Like really it only gets better and like, I can continue from here to build and make it better and better. Yeah. yeah. Rather yeah. than like. And also that like when things are working out, that is how it should be. And 100%. it's not just luck. Like yeah, it's the not synch- a fluke. synchronicities are what's supposed to be happening all the time. Mm. And if they're not, then something is out of alignment and it's, it's okay. It just needs like a kind of a deeper look. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think about that a lot. Cause I think I grew up, like programmed to think that when things work out, it's once every, you know, Mm -hmm. few years or whatever it is where it's like, you work for it, you work for it and then it works out. And then you got to work for the next thing. Like it should be like in flow and it, and then like the anxiety just lifts Mm because it just is how it should be. But anyway, I feel you on that. 
No deficits. No deficits. (laughs) Um, So how can people connect with you and follow your work? I mean, so many things are coming out soon, so I want them to um, be up on it. I guess follow my Instagram. I feel like I share a lot of that stuff. I just directed a series called East of La Brea cool. for Paul Feig's company. So that and that yeah. like follows like three um, you know, like friends who are like mid twenties, early or mid twenties, late twenties, who are kind of like I don't know. We're, it's kind of an exploration of LA, but not in like the sunny, shiny way that we're like used to cool. seeing it. Cool. So we're seeing the beauty in like neighborhoods we don't often get to mm. um, explore. So that I'm really excited about. We're in post production for that, so it'll be a little bit. I'm directing on Grownish in a couple weeks. No way! Yeah, yeah. so I'm excited for that. Don't know what episodes it is. Dude, yet. that's amazing. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so that's going on. But I mean, I would say share on my Instagram because that's yeah. probably where. Okay. Yeah. So that's like Sambi dot chi. Great. Sambi shy Chicago for life. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having the best. Yeah, it's such a good time. Thank you guys for listening. Mm-hmm. We love you. Make sure you connect with Sam. Um, Stay tuned for Brown Girls on HBO. Mm -hmm. And everything's linked in the show notes if you guys want to watch and everything like that. And we will talk to you later and see you in the Facebook group. Love you. Love you. Bye. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, lovely. Yeah, I loved hanging with her. Um, Okay, review of the week. Let's see. Uh, Hurry and listen. Five stars. This is my favorite podcast ever. I love how Lindsay and Krista talk about spiritual things and an easy way to follow and so many topics that I've never known about. I'm always learning and laughing when I listen to Almost 30 and have been listening to them since the beginning. Listen to this podcast to laugh, learn, and change your perspective on things. Thank you so much. This is Happy Woo. (laughs) I love when people give little nicknames. Cute. Happy Woo. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Um, Reviews on iTunes mean a lot, so appreciate it. We will see you on tour next summer. Um, This year, we will keep you posted for our dates, so stay tuned. We've got a lot of exciting things coming your way. And thank you again, Sam. Sam can be found on Instagram at samb.chi, so sambbshy. And then she has her website, sambailey.com. So that is where you can find her and all of that, samqbailey.com. That is where you can find all of her information and then on Instagram as well. Thanks so much for listening. We love you. Have a great week. Bye.